0: Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I speak to Eric Kaufman, who's a professor at Birkbeck College, London. We talk about his book, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. And we talk about the ways that demographic changes are going to lead to political contention in the coming decades in Western democracies. Welcome to the Keeping It Civil podcast. Professor Kaufman, or Eric, if I may, thank you for joining us I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about your biography, actually, because I read that you were born in Hong Kong, you grew up in Vancouver, you also spent significant time in Tokyo, but you did all your, well, your master's at least, and your PhD you did at the LSE, so you're something of a well-traveled individual, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, and maybe whether you could talk about whether this has informed your scholarship right so your interest in political demography and nationalism has that been affected by just living all over the world
1: yeah henry absolutely you know i grew up eight years in tokyo i mean from being very young like you know two three up until about age seven and then a second time, age 10 and 11. I went to an international school and, you know, those schools, they all, you know, 60 different nationalities and then you have the the international day where every country has a booth. and Yeah, you kind of, you just become more aware of nation as a category and as a part of
0: identity. Uh Uh-huh. And did you begin your academic career when you did your PhD or master's degree. Did you write about these issues already for your PhD or is this something that developed later?
1: Uh, No, uh, well, the intersection between immigration and national identity that formed the basis of my master's degree and my PhD. And, in fact, my white shift is circles back a lot to what I wrote in my first book, on uh, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America. Yes, So a definitely. lot of the, certainly in the early chapters, a lot of that material is kind of drawing out of my first book, which is coming from my PhD. So, in a way, my interest was already, was very much there, let's just say, 20, 25 years before Brexit and Trump. The question you can sort of see in my first book is more, this is interesting in America that this dog hasn't barked yet. That's what people like Samuel Huntington and others were interested in and talking about was, it is odd that, you know, you've had this Large scale migration, a lot of it illegal. And yet you haven't seen what we've seen with the far right in Europe, for example, in in America. How can we explain this oddity? That was the question that, that people had then. And so Trump is kind of like, well, let's say 10 years later coming onto the scene.
0: Yes, it's true that the study of the radical right and kind of radical politics around immigration was focused on Europe for a long time and also on cases that now are not even the most interesting, right? It was about Austria. It was about the Netherlands, I believe, the Dutch, Italy to some extent, and of course to some extent the National Front, the early literature on the radical right in Europe. But of course now... People are interested in Brexit, in UKIP, in the AFD, in Germany, this Sweden radical. The
1: Democrats,
0: look yeah, at the recent election. D- right? There almost yeah. seems to be no country that's untouched in Europe. And of course, it's arrived in the United States. Did you find that when you were studying these topics as a young scholar, doing your PhD, etc., was it sort of regarded as something of a backwater of research? Were there many people working in this area?
1: There were, I mean, there was a tension to the radical right in Europe. I mean, it still, as you say, was limited to a certain number of core countries. There was a kind of a watershed. Let's just say if you take 2001, 2002, sort of the period between 1999 when the Austrian Freedom Party under Heider got 27 percent. And then 2002, I believe it is, when Jean-Marie Le Pen got 18 percent and there were like I think a million protesters out on the street. I mean, that's kind of, you know, 18% as opposed to whatever it was, 40% last time with, with, it just shows you the number, uh, the support level has gone up so much. It's continued to increase, and yeah. And yet the re, and the reaction has gone down because it's now people realize that this is not such a dramatic thing. But at the time, this was just, you know, a heresy that Le Pen could come second on 18%. It just shows you how, how the scale of this thing has increased over time.
0: And also how the so the salience of these issues that you write about, immigration in particular, right. seems to have increased in a lot of societies, not only in the United States. But would you say that this is something that political scientists saw coming or was it really a surprise?
1: Academia had been studying this, so it wasn't ignoring it. It very clearly was... But There was a sort of view that well, uh, this is partly to do with you know historical
0: contingencies in certain countries right. the legacy now, of old far right parties, even right. fascist parties in certain areas yeah yes. a lot of the
1: explanations like Front National would go back to you know Algeria and go back to kind of Mora and and that older tradition uh, far right tradition or in, in Italy to fascism or you know or even in in Austria. The view was well, you know, Britain—they—they don't have a proportional representation system, right? Yes, they don't, you know, the, it would never happen in Britain, and oh, you know, Sweden—it'll never happen in, in Sweden, and it'll never happen in in this country, in that country, it only so that was sort of the kind of explanation. Germany, no, they had the Nazis; they'll never vote for you know. So that that is kind of you had all these ad hoc kind of reasons why these things could never happen outside the core of these countries that had these parties, and also a sense that. You know, it's a certain proportion, but it's not likely to be uh, approaching the kind of numbers that Le Pen and the FPO in Austria got recently. So that was kind of the lay of the land at that point. As far as the U.S. goes, I do think there was a lot of interest in, you know, to, and there was a sense that immigration was a factor, that the white working class – was turning away from socialism. And I think that theme was already there, that the working class abandoning the left right. um, was becoming an issue already. So I, I, th- I'm not, I wouldn't fault academia too badly, but it's more just it caught a lot of people by surprise. I think where you can fault academia more is... In predicting incorrectly, let's say, Brexit and Trump, although, again, predicting these things is very difficult in any case. And so, again, I don't fault academia as much as other people do. I mean, the polls did look a certain way and, and you've got to go by what the surveys show. But it is true that if you don't know anybody and if you're not interacting with you know with people who who are Brexiteers or Trump supporters, that is bound to affect your worldview and your ability to predict the flow of events. So there I think the, the critics have a point. <laughs>
0: That the academics, because of the social milieu that they occupy, found it difficult to understand the basis of support for some of these populist, anti-immigration, radical right, whatever you want to call them, kind of movements?
1: They weren't necessarily getting a fully accurate picture of public opinion. Now, the second critique is also that the kinds of explanations that they reached for, typically around you know race and nostalgia, I also think were distorted by their, the bubble that they exist in and by the kind of discourses and narratives. Now, not everybody. So there were a few people who kind of you know wrote interesting things, and, but, but this is after Trump got in. Someone like Ashley Jardina on her White Identity Politics book, for example, who tries to sort of distinguish between you know, racism and racial resentment on the one hand and white identity as something distinctive from racism can't be collapsed into it.
0: But this is part of the project that you take up in your book, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities, in which you kind of lay out a pretty wide-ranging theory and set of predictions for politics across the Western world, right? I'd say this is an argument that doesn't just apply to Britain, where you live, or even to Western Europe, but to the United States, and maybe even to other countries as well and sort of ethnic or racial identity national identity plays absolutely central role in this story. So what is this white shift that you're you're writing about because it's an interesting argument.
1: Yeah, so it's sort of a political demography argument really about population change, particularly ethnic shifting. And so the first there's kind of like a white shift 1.0 and a white shift 2.0 and the, the 1.0 is really what we're living through and will live through in our lifetimes, which is this sort of quite substantial decline of ethnic majorities, in some cases to uh, below 50% of the population. And I guess I'm arguing that's the backdrop to a lot of the populism that we're seeing. And immigration is sort of a lightning rod issue for that change. The sort of White Shift 2.0 is more a futuristic thing where I'm trying to sort of argue that the boundaries of these ethnic majority groups will kind of expand and, and there will be a melting in assimilation of uh, various groups as they intermarry into this ethnic majority. And so that will change the nature of politics that as these ethnic majorities then absorb other groups into themselves. Uh, I, I think these new mixed race kind of majorities that will emerge in the next century will largely graft on to the existing ethnic majorities. And at that point, I think a lot of these tensions will probably abate to some degree yeah this is that's (laughs) that's that's
0: in the future that's a long way in the future uh, right so this is the kind of interesting part of the story is that there's a lot of contention shall we say as a kind of a broad term at the moment around race and ethnicity and identity because the established racial majorities which are predominantly white in most countries in the west or historically have been being demographically eroded at least if we look at like statistics about how many people from overseas how many people are different ethnicities and nationalities etc but then at some point there's going to be this transition when some of these people who now are not considered white will come to consider themselves white and so there'll be a new white in quotation marks majority is that correct that there's going to be this sort of ebb and flow of the white majority.
1: Yeah, I think that is that's essentially the argument for the longer term and you can look to countries like the US and Canada or even Britain to see that, you know, Catholics and Jews were on the outside of what it meant to be a kind of, you know, true member of the ethnic majority in the US, let's say, for quite a while. And then starting in you know, probably it was not until the period from about the nineteen sixties to the nineteen eighties that The ethnic neighborhoods broke up, intermarriage between Protestant and Catholic increased, and so you had this emergence of this kind of white majority that didn't have a a distinction between the WASPs and the others. And so that's just a demonstration, I think, of the kind of process that we're probably going to see down the road as people who are – Hispanic or they're mixed white and Asian or or even mixed white and black will, I would argue, gravitate or towards the identity of that majority group over time. Now, Mexico is uh, Mexico's another an example of where you can see the kind of Spanish and the Amerindian elements have m- fused together – and so, by you know, 1910 or thereabouts, you know, there was this thing called Mestizo, which is seen as the core of Mexico. But that's another example of these melting processes. But it takes time. I mean, part of the the argument is we're not going to see significant melting until we get towards the end of our century and right. into the next one. So in our lifetime, that's not going to be a factor.
0: Yeah, a, a this is a very factor. long-term yeah, argument. I know, yeah. uh, so, <laughs> so I have so many questions about this process. Because, so, and I guess the first one is one about timing, and I think this is probably a question that a political demographer gets all the time, right, is that these are very slow changes. You know, demography, as you note in your book, is a very precise science, probably the most precise of all the social sciences, but it also tracks changes that occur very slowly. And yet it seems to me that this upsurge in right-wing politics, anti-immigration politics, populism all these kind of hodgepodge, really. Why does it seem that this is all happening now rather than, say, 30 years ago? I mean, there were big ethnic shifts in Europe, for example, in the wake of the breakup of the Soviet Union. There were huge numbers of Russian Jews came to Germany, for example, during the wars in southeastern Europe and the former Yugoslavia. There were a lot of refugees and immigrants into central Europe, and into Switzerland, etc. It seems like there have been all sorts of reasons why you might have seen this sort of transition at any time over the last sort of 30 years? Why is it happening now?
1: One thing I would say is that in my book, I'm very much making the argument that right-wing populism, Matt Goodwin calls national populism, is heavily linked into a substantive issue, which is immigration and ethnic change. In a way, it's not just, oh, we hate the elites. And I am arguing very much against the economic arguments that the financial crisis, deindustrialization and these things play a big role. I don't think they do. So w- what I would say is that, you know, if you look at migration flows, especially from culturally distinctive regions, you know, it's not a perfect correlation, but there's an important correlation. So if you take Britain, for example, you know, the other thing to clarify is it's not the people's attitude to immigration, whether they want more or less changes that much with changes in the numbers. But what actually occurs is people who already say immigration should be reduced, instead of immigration being their number five, six issue after the economy and healthcare, it's their number one or two issue. So if you take Britain, for example, the number of people in England and Wales who say that immigration is their top one or two issue rose sort of from 5% or something in the mid 1990s to something like 40% prior to the Brexit vote. It rose, and if you look at the time series of actual immigration media stories on immigration and concern over immigration they're all rising they grow in tandem Uh, so you're
0: making almost like a tipping point argument where an issue can be a low priority because there's not much sort of pressing concern about it but then it can slowly rise up the rankings and there's a big difference between maybe being the third or fourth priority and being the first and second so once it reaches the first or second priority then it starts to determining elections essentially and so there's like a tipping political tipping yeah point.
1: so that the, the salience measure you know people who say this is the most important issue facing britain or america or whatever that is correlated in with populist right support there's a paper by james Dennison and andrew gettys and his colleagues that look across a whole bunch of european countries and they show this relationship between migration levels concern over migration populist right support in europe in continental europe I would say the scale is quite a bit higher than in the past. And so if you take the period 2014 to 16, now the peak of the migrant crisis was probably late, you know, August 2015. I mean this is a time in which the populist right really starts to – you know, the AFD in Germany emerges really. I mean it had already existed as a kind of low-tax libertarian act. Sure. Uh, that thing really takes off and it's correlated with monthly arrivals during the migrant crisis. Sweden Democrats, same thing. You know, They get their takeoff during this period as well. So, very much a link between particularly illegal or refugee arrivals, that correlates pretty well. That leads to media coverage, leads to higher salience, leads to populist rights support. So, I think if we're explaining why now. Now, the other part of this too is competing issues matter. So, you know when the economy is a real problem or a pandemic is a real problem then those issues are going to have lower salience and this is one of the reasons why i kind of i'm cautioning people now like you know we are in a very unusual period when we've had a pandemic we've had uh, an unprecedented interstate war of course the economy is going to rise up people's priorities but if these things were to fade away and the pandemic's already done that to a large extent if there's some resolution to the Ukraine thing and the economy and cost of living is no longer the driving issue, I would expect there to be more room for these cultural issues to reemerge. And that's going to help the populist right, whereas the pandemic and the war in Ukraine cost of living does not, in my view, help. It actually hurts the populist right. So I think we're actually in a period which is a bit of an illusion if we think that the populist right is going to be you know, harmed by the economic crisis going away. I think we're kidding ourselves.
0: Very interesting, but it does occur to me that there are other sort of stalking horses, if you will, that could be just as important as immigration that could sort of become, you know, preoccupations of our politics and maybe swamp the effect of demography. So, I mean, immigration and cultural conflict. For example, most welfare states, I would say, are going to struggle to cope with demographic change of a very different kind, which is aging. So I would say that most welfare states, I mean, I think that Social Security in the United States is basically going to go, it's not funded past, I believe, the early 2030s. The share of government spending that's going to go on a lot of the more generous pension and healthcare plans as people get older is going to just increase exponentially. There's a sort of growing sense that there's more geopolitical competition, obviously, with Russia and Eastern Europe. At the moment, we have these issues. But then, of course, there's the sort of elephant in the room of China. There could be sort of another big structural confrontation in the international system, like with the Soviet Union that is just as enduring. Do you think that there's a potential for those sorts of things to swamp the effect of immigration and lead to quite different cleavages in society, whether it's old versus young or like a nationalist sort of a, a nationalist antagonism towards a foreign adversary. Do you think that that could sort of lead your argument to be dormant for long periods of time? The first thing I
1: would say is, that, is yes, is, is that if those issues were to come, if China invades Taiwan and then all uh-huh. of a sudden that's where the focus is then that will weaken the forces of national populism, I would say. Conflict with China will play more to a kind of technocratic established, you know, traditional kind of political divide and will not, in my view, help the populist right. I mean, the population aging, I've been always generally been much more skeptical of this old versus young type of... Uh I don't think that's actually going to be the way people... Construct themselves. I mean, there's a little bit of generational stuff happening. That narrative can, can
0: okay, get a little enough. bit of
1: traction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see it in Britain, you know, where there's a huge age gap in in voting. Although you don't see it in in a lot of other countries, you know, Canada and Sweden, the young are the younger are, are as are more right wing than the old. But you know, I kind of think how will countries adjust to the aging issue? I think probably they're going to have to try and you know get underutilized pockets of labor, be that along the lines of age, gender, education, whatever, into the workforce. It may be you're going to have to fiddle around with retirement ages and various other kinds of rules. I don't know what kinds of rationalizations are going to have to happen in the health sector, but I think that those kind of adjustments are going to be made. And I think, you know, if there's a hard budget constraint those hard decisions are going to be made and they may not be super popular but maybe if they're framed the right way people will accept them I think the old are probably willing to sacrifice for the young to some degree because that's their own offspring so I'm not persuaded by this this generational thing being super important now maybe I'll be proven wrong
0: Another question I had was about the formation of national or ethnic identities, right? Because there are long periods of time when these identities are kind of suppressed or demobilized, particularly on the left, right? If you think about the traditional left-wing politics and labor unions and things, they had no interest. And when I say that, I mean sort of no material interest, but also no ideological interest in allowing ethnic divisions to sort of undermine the class-based mobilization that they were trying to engage in, right? So if you look at you know for example here in Arizona there were these large copper mines in rural areas and the labor forces were very very ethnically mixed you had what they called anglos which basically was anyone from western europe and that so that included poles and people from cornwall that had mining experience people from southeastern europe and then you had of course large mexican populations that were coming up from mexico to work in these mines and yet quite quickly despite probably much less acceptance of difference, ethnic difference in this period of time, right? In the U S and around the world, the labor unions were able to suppress those ethnic cleavages and even linguistic differences in between Spanish speakers and others in the name of mobilizing against the employer. Right. And I would say that this is maybe a big mission of the left in general is to suppress other divisions in favor of the class division. So, Do you think that institutions, that mobilization plays a big role? Because in your story, it seems to be, well, we have this demographic change and then we have this political change. But isn't there (laughs) at least one link in the chain got to be organizations like labor unions or other grassroots organizations, political parties, all sorts of other institutions that take these sentiments or views and either mobilize them or repress them or sort of suppress them? Do you think that there's a possibility for institutions to moderate this change that is going on in the mass population?
1: I think they can either moderate or exacerbate. So it can go both ways. It's interesting, the example that you use of Arizona. I don't know the local context as well as which unions but what I would certainly say is in American history unions have been at the forefront of all immigration restrictionist movements up until say the 1960s you know in the turn of the century was the well the Knights of Labor first and then the American Federation of Labor were all very anti-immigration and their membership was lean very much more Protestant than Catholic for example then of course you had the kind of racial divisions within the unions and, and opposition to using African-American labor. And so I, I wouldn't... So it
0: can go both ways. I,
1: I think so. And I think also the with um, the unions, for example, then start to say, well, no, we're going to be, as they did in the US, oh, we're pro-immigration now, which kind of is a tricky one to understand given generally you would have thought restricting the supply of labor would be in the interest of unions. So the question then becomes, well... If the left and the unions are now moving towards a more kind of, you know, the cultural turn of the left towards openness to migration and globalization and multiculturalism and so forth, then one possibility is you would then get an alienation of a significant share of the working class and that would then be able to be mobilized by a populist actor. And I think one of the explanations for the rise of, the populist right in Europe and to some extent even here is is it's that group of disaffected white working class voters that have shifted over and left in large numbers. I mean, you just have to look at how many white Catholics in America still vote, you know, for the Dem- identify as Democrats drop substantially. You know, from well eighty five percent around nineteen sixty when Kennedy was elected, it's now well a minority. I don't know what the actual it's about thirty percent, something very small. I still put a lot of faith in these sort of mass sentiments and if institutions aren't responding that opens up space for a populist. So if if no none of the major parties are dealing with immigration and the Sweden Democrats come along and say hey we're going to talk about this then they're going to get a lot of votes because there's a political vacuum there. Now that's not to say institutions have no power. They do clearly. I mean right now I would say in Britain there's a relative degree of disarray on the populist right in the sense you've got several different Factions or movements vying to be the, you know, Reform UK, and you've got uh, Lawrence Fox, and you've got a, a number of other SDP, a number of other formations. And so it's more incoherent, and therefore it's harder for them then to attack the conservatives. Whereas if it coalesced around a figure like Farage and UKIP. So these institutional factors matter, but I think ultimately these sort of wider cultural moods,
0: I put more em- emphasis on them. So in your book, you make this argument that there is obviously this change in levels of immigration that's leading this to become a more high priority for a lot of voters. And it's threatening the white majority's status, leading to this first step of the white shift that you're talking about. But then you also say that there are four different responses and it's not entirely clear who responds, right? Whether it's voters, whether it's political parties, whether it's elites, institutions. We can talk about that maybe. But there are four responses and it'd be I'd be interested if you could describe them quickly. Fight, repress, flight, and joining those are the four responses to the first stage of the white shift.
1: right so the book sort of gets beyond politics and gets into things such as social and geographic segregation um and it gets into assimilation and intermarriage and these sort of more sociological topics which which are are something i've all long had an interest in anyway since i sort of come more from that sociological strand there's a book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, which is right. Albert famous. Hirschman, yeah. Right, Hirschman, right. So this sort of, you know, you can, you can sort of voice and challenge, which would be the populist right response to try and reduce immigration, or you can exit, which would be the sort of white flight, although I talk about why that's not the right term. What we see, or I've looked at the data in the UK, US, and Canada, but I've also seen papers for, say, Sweden, you see very similar trends in those places which is that it's not so much that people are fleeing areas as they become majority minority at the neighborhood level but it's more that young people when they're looking for somewhere to move you know from the white majority they have the most exclusive preferences so they want an area that's going to be something like say 65 70% white minorities might prefer an area if they're hispanic that's maybe 50% hispanic or 50% African, but not 70 So you have these relatively, I won't say exclusive, but the preferences for a your group to be in the majority seem to be stronger amongst whites than other groups. So areas that are already substantially white will tend to attract net positive white migration over time. And you can even look at that at the sort of, even at the state level to some degree, you know. But it's certainly if you take major cities in California, let's say, cities compared to those cities in Idaho or somewhere, you know. So a city in Idaho like Boise, for example, would be, you know, majority white. And that kind of a city would experience net white population increase over time. Whereas a city like San Francisco or um, even in the northeast like New York, you know, those sorts of cities would tend – the greater metropolitan areas would tend to see white population loss. The areas that are majority minority like the inner boroughs of New York – they attract very few whites into those areas and so one of the patterns we see is that in fact whites are not going to return to east los angeles to you know the outer boroughs of new york it's really a now minorities so increasingly most of the most homogenous neighborhoods in america will be minority neighborhoods black Hispanic etc. You're not going to nest. you are you're, you're seeing fewer and fewer lily white neighborhoods in major metropolitan areas because of the general ethnodemographic shifts and a number of minorities will enter into these heavily white areas but you don't find whites entering into heavily minority areas except in a few discrete locations near city centers where you get gentrification. It
0: seems to me like these different responses to increasing diversity at the individual level they're not mutually exclusive so you could have an individual who for example engages what you call the fight response which is to basically i guess vote for a right-wing immigrationist even yep. immigration restrictionist party while at the same time engaging in flight right moving to a more white more homogenous area whereas it you could also potentially have a combination among the same individuals that repress, right? And we should talk about that more, the idea of trying to suppress this anti immigration sentiment. They might those same individuals might engage in what you call joining, which is intermarriage with minorities. Is that fair that these aren't sort of mutually exclusive categories that the same people could be engaging in different combinations of them. Yeah, very much so.
1: And that's one of the things I mentioned is that these aren't exclusive. I mean, I know some academics who've written about, like Jamil Velez, for example, who said, well, you know, there is a kind of degree to which if whites can't flee and self-segregate, they'll be more likely to vote populist right. And, uh, you know, that is an argument and it's one that he's tested out and he's found some support for. I mean, I one of the relationships, I don't necessarily see that as strongly. I mean, one of the, for example, People who tend to move to more homogeneously white areas do not necessarily differ in their political outlook. Okay, their support for Trump, support for Brexit. Both your very liberal and your very conservative whites are moving out to these areas in similar at similar rates. Okay, but now whites, of course, are moving to white areas much more than minorities are moving to white areas. So there is ethnic segregation. The ethnic segregation is much more powerful. The ideological aspect of it is weak to non-existent. So it's not the case that people who are populist right voters are disproportionately moving out and fleeing. There is almost no evidence for that. So they're quite separate processes. In fact, people who are movers, movers in general are a bit more liberal than non-movers. So someone who moves from a, a minority dominated area to white dominated area, because they're a mover, often they're a little bit more liberal actually. And so it might be the whites who remained in these areas because they're you know, conservatism and not moving are linked, you know, they're used to a certain neighborhood. Similarly with the joining and mixing and melting, not necessarily the case that people who are intermarrying or whatever are vastly more tolerant than those who don't intermarry so yeah there's a lot of these kind of complexities and complex relationships i mean there are some that are related so for example if you intermarry across a racial boundary you're going to be much less likely to engage in what we might call white avoidance or white flight simply because your partner your partner's choices are going to be different from yours and so your compromise might be to live in a mixed area
0: Let's come back to the second of your responses that you talk about in your book, which is to, you call this to repress, which is kind of using provocative language, right? Right. So you could have said suppress or, I don't know, tamp down or something, (laughs) but you said repress, which suggests kind of a forceful move against this, I guess... I guess what you see is quite a natural growing aversion to immigration or diversity on the part of white majorities. So why don't you just tell me a little bit more about this repress response, which seems linked to this concept of or these group of left modernists that you call them.
1: Yeah. And, and this is the uh, another major component of the book, which is that, you know, we might have imagined these demographic shifts occurring at a different moment when... The evolution of left liberal ideology had been different. Let's say the 1920s or or even better, the 1880s, let's say, you know, we could have had a, a situation where there was a global demographic revolution, which has to do with the timing of the demographic transition in different parts of the world and the disparity between the global north and global south which is very great right now might have you know it might have been very great in the past and maybe the global south in the past instead of having high mortality might have actually been able to conquer mortality and have a population explosion earlier we would have then faced this problem or this issue in in the 1880s i think we could have seen you know a relatively different outcome so what's happening is we have this big disparity between the global north and south in terms of their demographic transition and population booms, creating demographic pressure, push and pull factors at a time when left liberal ideology has evolved in a certain direction. And so you've got this cultural shift in the left towards identity and away from class that occurs post 1960s at exactly the time that we're seeing this demographic disparity and dissonance between the global north and south. So these big demographic pressures are happening at a time of liberalization and of the cultural turn of the left. And so for, if you like, the white left or white progressives, immigration becomes a resource that they can use and feeds very much into the politics of multiculturalism and identity and so, if you are a kind of a member in good standing of the progressive group, or, um, and certainly say in elite institutions, being pro immigration, you know, is very much a part of that identity. And so, the idea of being concerned about immigration, uh, and certainly concerned about ethno demographic change, would mark you out as a sort of apostate and, and a reprobate. If you are interested in being part of this group. Um, So the kind of mores and ideological shifts and ideological conditions are moderating this relationship in in, in the sense that it means that you have to kind of repress, if to use that terminology, any of these things which we, which an evolutionary psychologist just you know, basing behavior on these sorts of primordial evolutionary psychology drives, which go back to our you know history of where we would tend to cooperate more with people who shared more genes, which would tell from various kinds of racial or, or cultural markings. You know, that is the sort of. And I know there are problems with that model of human behavior, which which we can get into. But that has to be kind of repressed in favor of a sort of cosmopolitan, multicultural. Pro-change orientation. So I think that that is a part of the explanation is that the ideological shifts definitely have, have fueled or increased pressure not to take a restrictionist view on this.
0: So do you think that cultural elites, you said in the 1880s or the 1920s, do you think that they would have basically been more antagonistic towards immigration? They would have been there because either the cultural elites were conservative, which is potentially Quite likely, right? If you think about many Western countries in the nineteenth century, the elites at universities and things are probably much more conservative, or because on the left they would have been more focused on materialist outcomes, right? Protecting the domestic working class from low wage labor, kind of like Bernie Sanders' opposition to immigration, I guess to some extent. Is that is that what you're thinking? Is that it's kind of a strange confluence of the dominant ideology being very pro-immigration on the left and the high levels of immigration.
1: There's actually more complexity there, right? So if we take the American case, the Socialist Party of America, for example, was very anti, generally anti-immigration. The unions were anti-immigration. And so you had a significant component of the left. Which was anti immigration. It wasn't the left that was really the pro immigration force. Now, if we move from 1905 onwards with the liberal progressives, you had, I would call them liberal or liberal left elements. I mean, the main pro immigration element were either the commercial interests or certain kinds of, of liberal, liberal, sort of libertarian liberal types who were pro immigration. That led to really odd configurations. So, for example, the progressive movement, 1890s to the 1920s, I mean, very strongly anti-immigration. They wanted to deal with, you know, these were left-wing concerns, the the condition of the working class in the cities. They were pro-votes for women. They were generally in favor of temperance and prohibition of alcohol, and they were in favor of immigration restriction. The liberal side were the ones who were more pro-immigration. That all kind of changes after World War I. After World War I, the communist – third communist international becomes much more concerned with things like colonialism, becomes more pro-immigration. That's a change. Whereas prior to that, the Marxists were saying if we let these people in, they're going to retard the socialist revolution because they're coming from backward societies and we need them to be – at the capitalist stage before we can move to the socialist stage and 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 they were in favor of eugenics and all these other things. So there's a big shift that occurs within the left and within the unions definitely. So the left changes a lot. So by the
0: time we get post 1960s, it's pretty unrecognizable compared to that earlier phase. So would you say that in this ideology of left modernism, which I think you also argue is kind of hegemonic in universities and other elite institutions, would you say that opposition to immigration is almost like a taboo in these groups, right? That it's seen as beyond the pale to oppose immigration.
1: Yes, definitely. And left modernism kind of originates in this sort of 1910s, that sort of period. And But the main motivation for those intellectuals was to say, well, you know, the Anglo-Protestants, they don't dance, they don't drink, they're boring, they, they're not intellectually interesting – uh, whereas, look at these—you know—the German or French or Italian or or even Jewish or you know or even African Americans with their jazz, much more expressive. So it was very much a cultural thing about liberation, and it didn't carry the same sort of moralizing tone necessarily. Uh huh. Even though they were very critical of their own group, Anglo-Protestant group. With the 1960s, what you get is the concerns of Black Power radicals, their critique of whites and, and white colonialism, and. White hegemony being adopted by the left. So the new left is now all of a sudden very in tune with identity politics. And, and in that context, you know, concern about immigration is linked, becomes linked to kind of race and racism, which has emerged as the highest taboo, which it wasn't. Prior to the mid-1960s, you know, politicians like Lyndon Johnson and Eisenhower and these people were using the N-word frequently to their staff. You know, it was a completely different world. Post- Mid 1960s, you get the rise of very quickly of racism as a taboo, as the highest taboo, and that infuses the new left and the way they view the world. It also infuses the wider society, by the way. And that's a big transformation. And so suddenly, now, you know, immigration, talking about immigration is in a restrictionist way, becomes very difficult if you are to be a progressive in good standing
0: so it's adjacent to racism which is the highest taboo so immigration right. is not the highest taboo, but it's adjacent to racism which is the highest taboo
1: yeah exactly and and so we for someone like a, a john Juddis or michael Lind, who would be kind of very much the outliers in being willing to talk about restriction you know first of all it has to be couched very much in economic terms and about harming the working class but even there they were going out on a limb Uh, when they were doing this in the in the 90s, you know, uh, very rare that you would have this. And then similarly, I think Sanders ran into that when he sort of even questioning something like open borders, which is a radical idea. The sort of signal that that's sending is, oh well, you're actually are you are you morally a good person if you're actually worried about that? You know, so so anything that can be associated in any way with this sort of ethnoculturally motivated restrictionism tends to be suspect.
0: But your argument is that this is essentially, in the final analysis, is self-defeating and destructive because it leaves the field open for the right-wing populace. If you make opposition to immigration a taboo and you don't speak about it, then you leave this issue kind of wide open. And I guess on the right, the there's no incentive for opposition to immigration because employers want lower wages, so they want greater labor supply, so they want higher immigration. So on the right, no one's talking about opposition to immigration. So you've got this topic that's steadily moving up the ranking list of importance for voters and no one's talking about it until Trump or the AFD or Farage or someone comes along and all of a sudden they gain a huge amount of popularity. Is that a mis? No, that's, representation no, it isn't
1: or? a misrepresentation. So the kind of suppression of it is what allows for populist entrepreneurs to enter, right? So right. it's a, I use the example of the kind of Soviet department store. You can have one pair of pants, you know, and it's, it's, that's, that's all we're going to offer. Well, if you want blue jeans, then you've got to go to the black market. And similarly, if you're only offering one point of view on immigration, mm-hmm. And the restrictionist point of view is not being offered. Well, the political entrepreneur is the black marketeer who's going to offer that.
0: So are you making a call then to the center left, right, to the traditional social democratic parties, to the US Democratic Party, kind of like I think Michael Lind has often cast himself as doing is to to be the one saying, wake up, you need to address this issue. Do you think that the left do you wish the left would do this or, or or do you think that it's okay that we have a populist radical well whether you want to call them radical or not nationalist uh, sort of tranche of our politics now do you think it's unavoidable that will continue or, or what do you think is is going to happen
1: well i i think it would be better if the established parties could represent the spectrum of public opinion i mean of course they're obviously going to have to be the big tents that moderate some of these Positions in the name of winning an election and reaching the median voter, but I think that would be a better situation than having uh, taboos which the uh, the everton window narrowing it so that you restrict topics off the table of democratic deliberation and discussion because once you open the field to a populist, you know they may not abide by other norms you know matteo salvini i mean i I think he talked about shooting. Refugees, or something—I can't remember the exact quote—but you know, clearly people can go way off. Or Trump, with talking, you know, his his comments about, you know, Mexicans coming across the borders is is potentially rapists. You know, I think clearly they're not going to abide by the same sorts of norms. You can say that it's important for populists to emerge in order to bring neglected topics into the democratic discussion and a lot of political parties emerged first as populist parties like the democrats in this country but at the same time you would hope that the established parties would be able to have this discussion reach an accommodation so that everyone feels heard and is therefore willing to accept whatever the accommodation is that is
0: reached <laughs> but it doesn't sound like and we can maybe conclude with with this because we are running out of time is it doesn't sound like from the tone of your book that you think that there's going to be a happy recalibration of mainstream politics where immigration is treated as a normal political issue, like the funding of Social Security, although... You know, as I mentioned before, I don't yeah. feel like we've really done a good <laughs> job of dealing with that. But it does but it doesn't sound or trade policy, for example. You can make a comparison with trade policy. It doesn't sound like there's going to be a happy new equilibrium where both major parties are able to represent the full spectrum of public opinion and there's going to be a fair and sort of even-handed and even-tempered debate that you seem to predict that this first period of the white shift is going to be extremely fractious and contentious. Is is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this raises a question of, again, that ideological issue. So, if you take communism and capitalism and the sort of mixed capital model that we we have arrived at over time, this involved, okay, people saying, yeah, I, I don't believe in you know, taxing at 100% and the government owning everything, and I don't believe in, in taxing at 0% and everybody, you know, just the marketplace. We, we're going to have a mixed system here. We need to arrive at that kind of consensus on the culture, and I think the problem that we have, I think this is more a problem on the left, Actions. I think the left has a more absolutist conception that either you are in favor of change and openness or you are a closed bigot. There are only two modes, and you got to pick one. Instead of saying some want faster change, some want slower change, and we're going to meet in the middle, which which is sort of what you would have, what you kind of have on the economy: high tax, low tax, high spending, low spending. We're going to kind of find an accommodation. I think the the way the left is sort of thinking about these issues is anyone who wants
0: lower and slower is beyond the pale. Thank you very much, Eric. This has been an excellent conversation. We always ask our guests for a book or a podcast or a movie or anything that they would recommend to listeners interested in the topic of civil discourse and civil debate.
1: Well, I think uh, Jonathan Rauch's new book, The Constitution of Knowledge, I, I really enjoyed. I think very relevant to that question because he's, he's really arguing for a kind of truth-based order. Uh, you know, in the law and journalism and academia and so on and just saying, you know, if we can get to that place where people agree to submit their claims to uh, empirical, you know, measurement and falsification and, and, and fact checking uh, and create a culture where we have kind of a view that there is an objective truth we can arrive at, then we can all be a lot more calm and we can accept that people are going to have different positions and different values and different views. And so, yeah, Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan Rauch.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Eric. And we actually had uh, Jonathan Rauch on the podcast, so listeners can even go and listen to a previous podcast about that book. Thank you very much again for a great conversation.